guys, welcome back to Caffeine and Crime, the podcast that sometimes gets uploaded. But for real, I hope you guys are having a great spooky season. It has been a busy one over here. And although I'm having a great time, I've been to one pumpkin patch on a field trip with my kid. I've been taking some nature walks lately, which has been really, really nice. The leaves are changing colors and just the fall fills is in the air and it's just uh, beautiful. I love the fall time. It is my favorite if you didn't already know that. But yeah, I hope that you guys are all doing well too. Um, I am back with another episode today and I am looking forward to talking about this one because it has definitely been one that has um, confused me for years too, but it's another one that's very close to home. This one is from Springfield, Missouri and it happened few decades ago, um, but it's always just been a question that's in the air and another cold case, but definitely a mystery at that. Like always, if you are listening to the podcast, you can check out the blog. It'll be linked in the description, um, all photos and all the deets that you may miss from visuals will be there in the blog. Um, you can also check it out if you're watching on YouTube um, or if you're listening to the podcast and want to jump over to YouTube, I'm here as well. Yeah, also hit me up over on Caffeine and Crime. This season is full of mysteries, so they're like the best ones to discuss. I love picking people's brains on mysteries. So if you ever want to talk about an episode um, or even recommend an episode, please let me know. You can message me on the podcast Instagram at Caffeine Crime Podcast. June of this past year marked 30 years since the disappearance of three women from Springfield, Missouri. This is the high profile case known as the Springfield Three. You may have heard about it, the disappearance of three women from Springfield, Missouri in June of 1992. It's graduation time at Kickapoo High School and the girls are so excited to be graduating for one, but they're really excited about all of the graduation parties and things that they're going to be attending. Stacy McCall was an 18 year old she was known as a fun, bubbly person. She had a really good sense of humor. People said that she hung out with the class clowns, was always joking around. She loved having a good time. She enjoyed modeling at a local wedding shop. People said she was very good looking, very beautiful, and she was very excited to graduate and go to MSU. Now, Susie Streeter was 19 years old and she was very outgoing. She was very outspoken, and like Stacy, she was really fun to be around. She was a very happy person, and she was usually seen with more of like the popular crowd, but she had been apparently dating uh, the quote-unquote bad boy. Friends say they teased her on how organized she was. She was a planner, always had a routine and place, and she probably enjoyed list like myself. <laughs> I love a good list. After high school, she wanted to become a hairdresser just like her mother. Who is Cheryl Levitt? She was 49 years old, the mother of Susie Streeter. She was a loving mother. She was a local cosmetologist hairdresser, and she really liked to play up her makeup and her hair, her appearance. She had a lot of fun with that. So it's right after graduation, and all of these kids were just wanting to have a big party. I mean, you're done with school, it's time to celebrate. 
A lot of them were heading to Branson, Missouri, which is a little bit more, I feel like, well-known from Missouri aspect as a, like a place to go and like have fun. I see Branson more as like a, a family fun place or whatever, but I can definitely see where some kids graduating would go and have fun at um, an amusement park or something like that. Um, and that's sort of what they did. They had plans to stay, the two girls, Susie and Stacy, had plans to stay at a hotel and then the next day they would spend the day at the water park, White Water, with a huge group of friends who all just graduated. That was kind of like their graduation bash party, I guess. And Stacy and Susie were going to join and stay at the hotel and then go to the water park the next day. But at the last minute, they changed their plans for some reason. We don't know if maybe they were tired or if they just didn't want to make the trip to Branson that night. Um, could even be one of those things where they're like, let's just spend tonight just us. And then tomorrow we can hang out with all of them. So they went over to the house of their other really good friend, Janelle Kirby. Stacy calls her mom around 10.30ish at night and, you know, tells her that she's going to stay with Janelle and then head to the water park in the morning together. And her mom told her to call her in the morning to check in. So Stacy and Susie head over to Janelle's to celebrate graduation. Um, I, apparently Janelle was having a party, but it was like, I guess like at her neighbor's house maybe, and they showed up um, and it was, it was very crowded and people were probably getting rowdy and everything else. It was a house party, um, but they still ended up staying till about 2 a.m. and decided they better get to bed or there was no way they're gonna go to the water park in the morning. But with how crowded it is, and again, it could have just been one of those things where like, we just kind of wanted to have like a relaxing night, like spend time together or whatever. They just like, were like, you know what? We're gonna go to, back to our place. Janelle, can you pick us up like in the morning, you know? So they decide to go back to Susie's place to crash for the night. And then Janelle would pick them up the following day to take them to the water park. So the girls head to Susie's house which is also Cheryl, her mom's house. She lives there with her mom at 1717 East Delmar Street. Like I said, she lived there with her mom, Cheryl. They had moved there actually recently um, into that house at least. Her parents had recently divorced. Um, I feel like I really tried to dig for more on Cheryl. Everybody just said she was a very nice lady. Um, her sister, described her as a pretty fierce lady who didn't do a lot of half measures in her life. Whatever that means. <laughs> like, okay. Um, but she was known as a very friendly hairstylist at a local salon. So Stacy and Susie get there, they change, they wash their makeup off, and they're getting ready for bed. And that was unfortunately their last known whereabouts. So the next morning around 8 a.m., Janelle, their friend, is trying to call Susie's house at this time, there's no cell phones, you know, so you have landlines that you're calling your friends on. No one's answering. So she figures they, okay, we all stayed up late. They're probably sleeping in, whatever. I'll just go over there when it's time to go. So she calls again a little bit later, she says, but she still didn't get an answer. So her and her boyfriend, they show up at the house because they're gonna go to the water park together um, and take the girls with them. So. They head on over around 9 a.m. because they're like, we gotta get them up, you know, so that we can all go. And at the house, all three cars are out front. Cheryl's, Stacy's, and Susie's car. 
So it seemed that everyone was at home and upon heading to the porch, they noticed a broken light. So they had like one of those like lights that could just kind of like stick over your porch. I mean, it's a porch light. Um, but like the, I guess there was just like maybe a, a bulb that was in it. The bulb was still hanging on, but it kind of had like some type of glass fixture around the bulb um, and that busted and the glass was all over the porch. So it was probably like thicker than like a light bulb glass, you know? For some reason, I mean, this is Missouri, so we actually have to have signs that say no shirt, no shoes, no service. But Janelle didn't have any shoes on. I mean, she's going to a water park, but still like you have walking to do until you get there. I just, I kind of laughed when I read that because I was just like, that is so Missouri. Although I do not do that. <laughs> she noticed the glass cause she was worried about stepping on it. Her boyfriend got something to sweep up the glass. I don't know if maybe it was a porch broom. I know that's a thing too. Like we sweep our porches, you know? So maybe that's what it was or maybe he made like a makeshift something to kind of like sweep it all up. I don't know, get it out of the way. Either way, they get it kind of cleared up and then they knock at the door, but there's no answer. And they realize the front door is actually unlocked. So they go inside and they look around. The TV's on, but it's just static in the background. The rest of the house is very quiet. And all of a sudden, Cheryl's dog, Cinnamon, comes around the corner and acts very anxious and is literally jumping at them, wanting to be held. Janelle says they felt that something was off about like the whole scene. Like she just said that she felt very uncomfortable. It was very eerie. They looked around and came across all three of the ladies, purses, bags, money, jewelry, makeup, and even $900 in Cheryl's purse. The weird thing about this placement though is that their bags were all piled up literally in the same spot together. You know like when you come home after a long day, you kind of just have like that spot where you're like keys, purse, whatever, you know, and you just kind of like just put it all right there. That's kind of how this was, but it was like in an odd spot, like kind of by like, I want to say it was like by a couch or something like that, just all piled up, but all three of their stuff. And it was just kind of odd since like, Stacy didn't even live there, you know, but it was just kind of like her stuff was all piled up right there too. Either way, um, although she said it felt very strange, and that they would leave all their stuff right there. She thought maybe they just got a ride with somebody else and just took something small with them to the water park because they didn't, you know, it's a water park. You don't really want to take a whole lot of stuff with you anyways. So they decide to just leave. They're like, let's just go to the water park. I'm sure that they're there. They probably just got a ride with someone. And that's when the phone starts ringing. And I mean, this may seem like not normal for like a lot of people, but like it is pretty normal for like, this wasn't like shocking to me that she just went into their house um, or that she's answering their phone. I just feel like whenever you're that close, like family, friends or whatever, that's just like something that I feel like people around here do, especially back then. Um, I wasn't per se alive back then, but I know like how like the 90s and 2000s were and it was like very chill, laid back. You had like your family friends that just kind of came and went. So Janelle answers it and says there was a man on the other line and he was saying some vulgar things. Um, she didn't, I I'm sure she told the police. We don't really know what was exactly t said, but she said that it was disgusting and it made her uncomfortable and she didn't recognize his voice. So she hangs up and the phone rings again and she answers and it's the same man saying the same things. 
This reminded her of the time that Susie told her that she was getting a lot of these like weird calls and she just thought, okay, maybe this is the same person that's been messing with Susie. So she's like, all right, you know, like this is enough, like let's just go or whatever. It's probably just like that weirdo calling. So they leave and they go to the water park. So by the end of the day, we ha now have Stacy's mom, Janice, who is really worried. She was known to be a little bit more of a worrier of a parent and wanting to know the whereabouts and like checking in and stuff as much as possible as you could back then. Again, you don't have cell phones. You can't send a quick text like, are you okay? Where are you at? That type of ordeal. So she just kind of wanted to be in the loop of like everything going on. So it's by the end of that day and you know, her daughter should be coming home from the water park. So she tries calling Janelle who was supposed to drive her daughter to the park that day. And Janelle says that they ended up not showing up and she guessed that she just stayed at Susie at her, with her, at her house. Which I find kind of weird because it's just like, they weren't there, their cars were there, and you went to the water park and they weren't there. Sometimes it's not adding up. So hours later, Janice, Stacy's mom, decides to reach her again. She calls Cheryl and Susie's house, there's no answer. The phone rings over and over. So she's thinking that it must just be the phone she drives over just to make sure that Stacy made it back and that, you know, everything's fine. And when she gets there, she notices that the door is unlocked too. She goes into an empty house. Janelle and her boyfriend, for some reason, show up like around the same time. I, I just kind of, I, I don't know. I'll talk to you guys about it more later, but just keep this in mind because I just feel like that is so weird. I mean, maybe there's more details about it. Maybe she tried contacting Janelle again and said, you know, I can't get a hold of her. I'm just going to drive over. I don't know, but I just found it weird that like Janelle and her boyfriend both come back over. So Janice sees Stacy's purse and makeup bag sitting next to Susie and Cheryl's and wonders why they are gone, but all their belongings are still there. So she's just like, I'm going to call the police. But while they're waiting, there was a message blinking on the answering machine. She tries to play the message and the person talking in the message is the same guy um, saying weird things, um, vulgar things, and she doesn't recognize the voice at all. And honestly, doesn't really think that there's any, anything important about it. She just is just like, ugh, you know? She thought it was weird, but nothing like, I guess like too out of normal, like, I don't know. But after listening to it, back then, answering machines, some of them didn't save your message and it got deleted. Now being a full 24 hours since seeing the girls, police arrive at the house concerned that people have walked all through a potential crime scene because they also are concerned about the deleted voicemail that they wish that they could have heard themselves. There was no sign of a struggle in the house whatsoever, and Janice walks them through the house and gives them all the details about the three women. Now, it's said that before the police showed up, Janice was doing a little sweep through the house, which I also find just so strange. And I know while this seems kind of just like a, a what the fuck type of moment, um, it's just kind of how people are around here too. Like, it's just so weird. I don't, I cannot picture somebody doing this at a potential crime scene though, which I don't think her mind and headspace was there just yet. I think she was very worried, but I don't think her mind went to like, this is a crime scene. But like, again, with like the closeness and like family friends and stuff, like, 
they're just kind of that way. Like if your house is messy and they're like there, they're going to try to hurry and clean it up for you. And that's kind of what she did. To her, it would be kind of like um, a favor for Cheryl of cleaning up and tidying up her place before people came over and seen it that way, you know? Apparently Janelle and her boyfriend were also there to help with this cleaning process. Um, and this could factor into not having a lot to go off with the house. There was no way of knowing exactly like how the house was left. And not to mention there was also talk about like neighbors like coming over and like walking through the house too. It was just, it's one of those crime scenes that you're just kind of like, it's like John Bonet crime scene. Like what can you do? After walking through the home, police determined to, it to be a missing person's case with foul play involved. And some, some of us are still kind of wondering like why since apparently the crime scene was so disturbed if it was the crime scene actually there. Um, but they left the house feeling that it was with foul play. Media got a hold of this very fast and the local news stations started airing their picture to get the word out. Janice had flyers made that were spread throughout town. And so what we know is they decided to not stay at the water park or go to the hotel. They decided not to go there. They decided to not stay at Janelle's and they decided to come back to Susie's house. Both of their clothes were folded on Susie's dresser. They found used makeup remover wipes indicating that they, um, that they were there that night and that they were settling in for the night at Susie's place. So they came in, they changed, they put their clothes on the dresser, they used makeup remover wipes to take their makeup off. Like they were there that night, not just their belongings, but they were in that house. Susie's bed was also kind of messy, like somebody's been slept in it. I mean, she could have just not made it the night before. Not everybody makes their bed every single day. Um, but they did say her bed was messy, like people had been in it. The police estimated that something happened between the time of 2.30 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. All belongings being left behind, including their vehicles. So of course, like a lot of missing people's case, they had a tip line and it got a bunch of calls. It was normally people saying that they had seen one of them, you know, at the store, at the store, and somebody seen Stacy driving a red convertible down Battlefield, which is like a main road in Springfield. Um, it's like, it's like one of those like main stretches that can get you to like a lot of places like the big stores and you know that type of ordeal and um later on when janice had heard about this tip she knew exactly who it was and that it wasn't stacy but it was stacy's sister lisa who was driving and there was just so many calls like that and it would be like one of their family members or just no leads would come of it whatsoever. And that has to be so devastating to have somebody missing. I just cannot imagine. I would go crazy, especially with the tip line. Like I know it's so important and even something that I would share with you guys to, you know, just get the awareness out there and be like, if you do know anything to please call because it is so, so important. But at the same time, like I just can't imagine how tiring that is. And especially those first tips that come through, where you're probably just like, oh my gosh, this is it. And then just over and over, just no leads. It, I, I can't imagine. And on top of that, it's been said they got a bunch of very, very horrifying phone calls. Um, 
saying that, you know, their daughter is dead and just all kinds of awful, it's disgusting. They eventually did have some leads to go off of. So we're gonna talk about those. First, they looked into Susie's ex-boyfriend um, who was, the one I mentioned was the bad boy. Um, his name was Dustin. He was arrested at one point for grave robbing. You know, casual weekend out robbing graves with his friends, got busted and um, was arrested. Around that time, Susie found out that he was doing it and she not only dumped him, um, but she actually filed a police report on him um, for the grave robbing and pretty much got them busted. Dustin and his friends who were also in on this grave robbing uh, were in court and Susie was actually scheduled to testify within a few months before she went missing. So this kind of sent off red flags for the police. They questioned Dustin, they questioned his friends. Um, they even did polygraph tests because they were just like, we, f we feel like this is such a strong lead. Like if somebody wanted them to disappear, wouldn't it be him? They all passed and no other leads or anything came from them. A lot of people also feel like if it was Dustin, or one of his friends, one of them would have spoken or ratted the other one out by now. And I kind of have to agree. I kind of feel like people can't really keep their mouth shut about stuff like that. And I mean, you burn someone over, even like the smallest thing or somebody gets too drunk and gets angry at somebody else and it's just like, you know, could come out at any time. The next lead was Bart Streeter. Um, this was Susie's nine years older brother. He was known as the black sheep of the family. Um, he kind of felt left out a lot and not really like a lot of his family and he hadn't lived in the home for years. He didn't have the best relationship with anybody in his family. Um, and it said that he became a very heavy drinker and he had a really bad breakup that sent him back to Springfield. I'm not really sure where he was in the first place um, on like his own, but it, this breakup sent him back to Springfield and it was actually like around, I, I think what they were saying was like around the same year or within the year of her disappearing. It said that he wanted to try to fix things with his family. He started doing a lot better. He was holding down a job and Susie at one point started staying with him to bond more and form a relationship. So she was actually packing up her things and she went and lived with him for a time being to uh, bond with him. I don't know if there was other stuff kind of like going down at home that would lead her to like not want to be home though. I have kind of questioned that like if her mom Cheryl maybe had like a relationship she didn't approve of or that she kind of felt like ugh about, I don't know. I haven't really seen anything about that, but it does make me wonder if it was maybe some shady person Cheryl may have been seeing. One night Bart had too much to drink. He was doing really good. 
then it just kind of slipped and he started going downhill with his drinking. This particular night, they got into a fight, him and Susie, and they were bickering back and forth like siblings do. They said things, it actually got pretty aggressive and Susie moved out, she was just done. It was the end of their relationship for her and this led police to question Bart. The night before they went missing, his alibi was he was at a friend's getting drunk. He was home around 11 p.m. and passed out. He was, quote, so wasted. There was no witnesses to this. They asked him to do a polygraph test and he too passed. So a woman that lived in the same neighborhood called a few days after the girls were reported missing. She said that she's seen a green van that was spotted on Delmar Street. She said she's seen a green van on Delmar Street the street of Susie and Cheryl's home. She said there was a man yelling at a woman who was in the driver's seat. So the woman was in the driver's seat, the man was in like the passenger seat and he was yelling at the woman who was driving. She said the woman was distressed and when it passed, the van passed her, she heard the man's voice aggressively say, and I quote, don't do anything stupid, end quote. When asked about it, she said it was odd and it stuck with her, but at the same time, she didn't know that the girls were missing. I don't know exactly where her house was located to where she didn't see like the police and everybody like worried at Cheryl's house and not kind of put two and two together, but she may have not been home around that time. I don't know this lady. When she was seeing the flyers and the news media coverage on these ladies, that particular moment came back to her mind and she thought, I have to tell someone because she said that the woman that was driving looked a lot like Susie. The police said she was a very credible witness. They didn't see like any holes in her story or that she would be somebody that would lie about something like this. Thousands of vans were searched and records were pulled on the make and model, a Volkswagen 1960 to 1970 model green van. They even had a green van of the same model. They painted it green and they put a flyer on it that said, have you seen these you know, missing women with all the info, the number to call on a van and put it in front of the police department. Like it was a very big ordeal. People were hanging flyers everywhere. To this day, there is still a flyer of their three faces hanging in a local bar. He's never taken it down. On New Year's Eve of 1992, America's Most Wanted was airing an episode on the Springfield Three. And after laying it all out, they tell the audience to come forward with any information that they may know about. With this, a man calls with information and they tried forwarding his call to the local Springfield PD, but the call was dropped in the midst of this and the caller never called back. And they were never able to track him down because of the time, once again, technology was kind of low there, but it's always left them wondering if that tip could have been a lead to something, if it could have found them. Now let's talk about Steven Garrison. He came forward and said that he wanted to plea a plea bargain on his own case. He was a man that was in prison for kidnapping and raping a woman at a college campus in 1993. So yeah, not a great person. 
In return, he would give all the information about what happened to the three women and where their bodies were buried. He says he was at a party one night drunk and another guy comes up to him drunk out of his mind. They were friends, maybe, we don't know. Um, and this guy just starts telling Steve that he did it. He said he was involved with the Springfield Three and while this didn't seem credible, Steve then started to mention some facts about the case that at the time the police had not given to the public. So it kind of was just like, whoa, like maybe this is really a lead. They then had him take them to the bodies, to where he said the bodies were at. It was a property that was previously a crime scene from another whole complete case where women's remains were actually found. Although the women's remains were never found there, there was some kind of evidence found. I don't think anybody really knows what that evidence was. Nothing was really said about it. And then the police immediately put a gag order on the entire case, which means that anyone that has been spoken to about the case, anyone working on the case, are pretty much like, there's nothing that they can say. They cannot say anything about the case. It is a gag order. It is hush-hush. Around this time, three, three search warrants were also um, put through in different states regarding what he had said had happened or what he said this other person had done that we just don't really know. But looking into it, it was search warrants that had to do with the people he was accusing of this. I feel like if there was anything like concrete or actually like, you know, credible, it would have went further and we would know something more now, but nothing, it's very weird. Another tip comes in this time from Florida on a Robert Cox, a man who was recently charged with the death penalty for brutally murdering a 19 year old woman in Florida. His verdict was reversed. Another whole story. I don't understand this. If you have been found guilty for murdering somebody, I don't know how you are just let free, but okay. It's another whole case. I don't really know all the details on that one, but I did find that very alarming and strange. He moved to Springfield around the time that the three women went missing. Something else, like it's just crazy all of these leads with nothing to come from them. He even had a job at the like car dealership that Stacy's dad worked at. It was very weird, like how all of these things just linked. Police questioned him and he says he stayed with his parents for a golf tournament. The next day, he was at church with his girlfriend. They have always questioned if this was true or not. And in the end, they had nothing on him. There wasn't really anything that they could really do. But in 1995, he was arrested again in Texas for aggravated robbery. Probably shouldn't have left him out. His now ex-girlfriend from the past starts to talk. She even takes back his alibi from the Springfield night. She says he wasn't with her that night and she lied for him. The police from Springfield then have to go to Texas where he is currently like being held from being arrested to question him, but he refuses to talk. Later in 1996, Robert pops up again with an interview with the local reporter. They ask him if he knows anything about the Springfield Three and he says, and I quote, I know that they are dead, I'll say that. 
end quote. Police once again have to go and question him, but he's super vague about it. He doesn't really like say a whole lot. He states he can tell them more when his mother dies, whatever the fuck that means. And that all he can say is that they are dead. He even said, and I quote, it's not a theory, I know that, end quote. He's actually still a person of interest. So years go by, and by June of 1997, the three women were declared dead even though no bodies were ever found. The case file still considers them missing. 10 years later, in 2007, a tip comes in from a woman who says that she has went to a psychic, she has talked to the psychic, the psychic has told her that the Springfield Three were murdered and that she knows where their bodies are at. She says that the, the psychic had a vision from the Springfield Three and that they were buried under a cement foundation of the South Parking Garage at Cox Hospital. Back when the women went missing, the lot was just dirt. The garage wasn't built yet. It wasn't even under construction yet. The police weren't a fan of this tip due to the, quote, psychic being involved. They kind of, in interviews, they're very, like, straightforward and very serious about it, just being like, we didn't see it as being credible, where this journalist who is the one that placed the call about the psychic. So she's not the psychic, she's just the journalist who went to the psychic. Um, she says the police straight up just laughed in her face. Police said apparently she said that a psychic had seen this vision and that um, there was talk about visions and an apparent ghost dog that found them in the garage. I don't know. So this local freelance journalist comes forward to the police and asks them if they will look into the garage. And they just turn it down. They said, we, we don't see it lining up. They said, there's no reason to believe that they are there and there's no point in destroying the lot. So this journalist, she takes the lead into her own hands. She hires a mechanical engineer who uses a ground penetrating radar to go through this garage. And the scan of the parking garage floor shows two images parallel to each other. There's another image not too far away. He claims that what is showing up on his radar is what would show up if he put his radar over a grave. But he also mentions the people who worked this ground would have looked into it before starting the foundation. Like they probably would have done this before they did even the foundation of this. I just kind of, this whole lead sounds like a CSI episode or something like that where it's like, maybe it's one of the construction workers and they like cleared it even though it wasn't technically cleared if that is what happened. Kathy, this journalist, then takes the videos of the images. She tells the police about it. She shows the police the images. They say it's not enough to demolish the garage. But Kathy keeps digging and digging and digging into the case until she finally goes quiet. Later on, she was interviewed and said the police laughed at her. Police in the same interview said that the timeline of the garage didn't line up. Construction never started until a year after they were missing, which I feel like isn't really like a strong enough thing to just say, like they could still have been placed there. And when pressed on if it could still be a possibility, they are located there. 
they just seem uninterested in the entire lead like no but the strangest most interesting part of this entire interview is what happens next with Kathy she says that she knows what really happened to the Springfield three and when asked she says they were killed before morning she also said other things such as Stacy wasn't a person of interest so she wasn't supposed to be involved maybe she wasn't targeted but the other two were Cheryl and Susie mother and daughter were targeted by somebody I don't know it seems like that's what she was getting at and when they kind of question her like okay well what would the motives been to this and she literally said and I quote I'm not going to talk about that and at this point it's not even the person interviewing her but it's also the people like running this shit in the background being like why are you doing this interview with us if you're just gonna clam up and not talk and she's like because their story needs an ending that's why they press her even further on the matter and she says, I'm sorry, I'm not giving the answers you want, but I live here. So yeah, I'm afraid for my safety. She states she has been boxed in by a car and asked if she was Kathy. And when she said yes, they said, the people I work for make people disappear. She said, I've been advised to leave this case alone. And she wouldn't say who is targeting her. She says the case is super dark. It's really frightening who you can trust. When you get down to it, there is a reason this case has not been solved. I just get chills from that. And I get, like, the police really don't think this woman is credible, but I'm just like, you know, I don't really X anybody off who is actually trying and really, like, looking into a case and digging for it. Like, I just think it's one more person that has their eyes open that are looking and that are you know still thinking about these three women that are missing so i don't see anybody as not being like credible in some way or another but you should definitely check out the interview it's just it's so bizarre and just so weird watching it it's just strange in 2002 another van was spotted at a lot and a cadaver dogs actually searched the area. They found the van, they sent out cadaver dogs, um, and they actually did find bones in this lot, but they were very old and didn't belong to the Springfield Three. The next year in 2003 on a farm, part of a van was found. And when the police searched it, they found blood and took it for evidence and testing came back inconclusive. There are so many leads on this case and it's kind of one of those where like working it i i definitely can say like i'm sure anybody working this case their head was just spinning with how much information was coming in and how much information they were trying to put out on this case and wrap their heads around let alone try to put all the pieces together and figure it out while there is still more leads out there like one call that they got that said the girls were taken to a location in Webster County and chopped up and put in a lake or a creek. They, at this point, I know that the police were invested because they actually had divers and search parties in the area and nothing came of this lead. So it makes me really think that they were very invested in finding them and they really seem very genuine and like their interviews and 
how much work and effort they put into the case and even the fact that even newer detectives that are working there now and are still working this case and trying to look into it and figure out what happened to these three women. But I don't know. I, I just feel like it's very strange. I feel like the only reason I have a hard time with the police with this case is I don't doubt the journalist for one minute that she was laughed at in her face. That doesn't shock me. I, 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 would, I believe that. And then how, you know, straightforward and just very like put together and professional they are in their interviews. I, and all of this is just like he said, she said. I'm just saying it's believable for me. But from everything else that Kathy said, kind of makes you wonder like, is there something on the inside going on? Like, how do we not have informa any information about these three women? And out of all places, like a place in Missouri, like it's just, it's so crazy that we have not had anybody slip up and say something that any of the remains has not been found. It's just insane. So it does make you kind of wonder if there is, and this is allegedly, if there's an inside source there or somebody on the inside that knows something or has covered up something. I mean, that gag order was put in effect so fast and nothing else was released to the public about the search warrant. So I don't know. I just feel like there's something dodgy going on there. It's definitely one of my theories. But speaking of the detectives that worked this case from back then working the case, they seem to have theories of their own. One of them says that he believes one of the women were being stopped for some time, and this is how it ended. So he thinks that one of the women was being stalked for a while, and the person came to their home and found them there and lured them or something. He didn't really give a whole lot of information away, but he believes one of them was being targeted, while the other seems to think it was someone that had been already looked into. So he believes it's one of the suspects I've mentioned from above. He doesn't really give it away which one, but he believes it is one of them. They don't really share much more about their theories. They're very tight-lipped about it because it is still a missing person's case. I have to say the first detective saying that he thinks it might've been like a stalker, it's definitely one that I've kind of wondered too. And it's been mentioned a lot as well. I feel like it's a very probable theory because the way that the women's cars were parked, apparently Susie who lived at the house, her mom would park in a certain spot and she would park her car in a certain spot she always parked her car in that spot but the way their cars were parked that day when they came and they weren't there was not normal it wasn't the typical way that they would park and it was parked in a way it's really hard to explain but it's almost like imagine a type of driveway where like someone is parked and you're pulling in and you're like oh i don't want to block them in so i'm going to park in a position to where that car can get out. It was like that. So it's like maybe there was another car there and she had to park. So it's like maybe someone came for Cheryl because the girls weren't technically supposed to be there that night. 
So if it was somebody that came for Cheryl, maybe even could have already had Cheryl in their vehicle, maybe even a green van, and then made the other two girls get in. But we also know that there's evidence of the girls being in the house, changing, taking their makeup off. So maybe it was somebody that came to the door and lured them out. Maybe a struggle, the light was broken. There's a lot with that stalker theory for sure. And I could see where it could be a pretty probable one for this case for sure. But it's just so strange that there's not really a struggle in the house. This person could have been someone they known because it's like they were lured out of the house. With the stalker theory, it also has so many questions because it's like, so it could have been somebody that Cheryl, the mom, was in cahoots with. Maybe it was a dodgy person she was seeing or maybe she went on a date with or maybe somebody that was stalking her knew that she would be home alone that night and then, ooh, surprise, the daughters come. Was that person Robert Cox from Florida? You know, that would be somebody that kind of linked up around that time. Um, or it could have just been a complete stranger that realized she was home alone. Things got messy, but they somehow were able to clean it up and never get caught. I feel like we still need to question if it was the ex-boyfriend, Dustin, Susie's ex-boyfriend, you know, the grave robber. I feel like while a lot of people still are very gun-ho on this theory, I am, I don't know. I think I'm one of those, I just, I don't see it. I feel like somebody would have talked or confessed or said something at this point. Like, I don't, it was such a huge thing locally. I, you never know though. Another one that I kind of want to throw out there and I hope I don't get any shade for, um, because obviously I don't know these people. Obviously I'm just an outside an outsider looking into this case. Um, I don't know their whole part and how it played out in this case. I don't know what their body language was like. I don't know their emotions or how they felt after this whole ordeal happened. I don't know, but there is two certain people in this case that my brain has went back to over and over again, and that is Janelle and her boyfriend. I don't even know her boyfriend's name. Don't even know if they're still together to this day. Don't know where they're at, nothing. So no shade towards them, <laughs> unless they were involved and then it's full shade. But I just feel like it is so strange that the girls were at a party there at Janelle's and then they go home. So Janelle knows they're home, you know? She knows that she, they're there. They go over the next day. They could have easily called, and this is all allegedly, let me just throw that out there, but this is a theory. They could have called, still gone over, but at the same time, like Janelle could have went over to the house that night. It could have been her car that parked there and they parked behind your, you know, to let her kind of have that spot. And then they parked in the other places. They could have been involved here. Um, they may have cleaned up the mess of the light because maybe they had left some fingerprints or evidence on it. Um, they helped Janice, Stacy's mom, clean up the house. 
like they'd be like oh yeah this is an opportunity and also them weirdly walking through the house to like and letting people know like oh yeah we walked through the house and then just going to the water park and just like trying to act like everything's fine i don't know i feel like it could have been set up by them like they're smart if they were able to do that and pull it off but it's like i don't know it's very strange to me i also wonder if maybe janice stacy's mom said something about the caller making the weird vulgar um comments on the messaging machine and then maybe janice was like oh yeah this guy you know she could have then made up the phone calls and said oh yeah he called earlier too just to kind of have more of like that innocence there but also what my brain keeps coming back to and it's just spinning in my mind is the fact that like janice goes over and then all of a sudden janelle and her boyfriend show back up and it's like they're they're like walking her through like what they had seen or whatever almost like they're just trying to come off too innocent to me i don't know it's so weird it's just such a weird connection and i could be so far off it's just where my mind kept going to i'm like maybe they haven't and maybe they haven't been like talked about enough in the case laid out like cleared like to the public i don't know but i also have not seen one person bring this theory up and just how strange everything with them is laid out but i also don't know what their motive could have been like what would the motive of killing them or taking them do the current detectives still looking into the case today say that it is an active investigation and not a cold case to them just a few years ago stacy's mom said and i quote i do believe they are probably deceased but I have nothing to prove that, and until I do, I will believe they are still alive and out there. I have to, end quote. Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter, Stacy McCall, 30 years ago from June. If you have any information, call the Springfield PD, 417-864-1700. Any tips, nothing shady, just any tips that you may know about or any information that's concrete like man i cannot imagine these families that are going through this it seems that a lot of uh, cheryl and susie's families have kind of just moved on from it and they feel or it seems anyways that they are they've come to i guess closure in a way of you know letting them rest and being okay with that now but janice is still searching and wanting to know what happened to her daughter or where her daughter is at and i cannot imagine being in that position so again if you know anything please contact the springfield police um this case these three women they deserve to be found they deserve to have ju that justice and have the public know what actually happened to them and have that person have to face the consequences of their actions on whatever happened to these three women and the families they deserve to know as always my condolences and my heart goes out to all the families of these victims um and i hope one of these days we find out what happened to these three
Like always, please let me know what you think. I would love to know your theories if you have any more, um, or if there's anything that I missed in this case, let me know over at Instagram, at Caffeine Crime Podcast, and I can put it on the blog for everyone to see as well. Um, another sad case, and it's just another one that just has really stayed with me. It has not left me, and I've just thought about this case for years, and I've always just wondered what actually happened, and it's just devastating thinking that we may never know. Thank you guys for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I really appreciate you listening. And I will see you guys next week with another episode of Caffeine and Crime.